Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Last year, we launched our course, The Data-Driven Classroom, and had hundreds of educators and clinicians take this course with consistently amazing feedback. I heard from so many teachers how this course really changed the way they approach data, how they were able to set up simple data systems, train their paras, and be collecting data to make data-based decisions within days of finishing the course. That feedback made me so happy. Now that course has been closed and unavailable since last year, but guess what? We are reopening the course, the data-based classroom, and I want you to be one of the first ones in. If data is something you have been struggling with for years, let's work on this together. Let me give you all of the tools to make this something that can consistently happen in your classroom. And guess what? Since you are a podcast listener, and I absolutely love my podcast listeners, I have an awesome code for you. When you use the code DATA100, you're going to get $100 off of the course bundle. Now, this code is only going to be usable until March 20th. So you only have one week to use this code, but Data 100 will get you $100 off of that course bundle. So that means for less than $200, you are getting the amazing data toolkit with literally hundreds of data sheets, all editable. And don't worry, I teach you how to edit it. And that entire data-driven course that touches on academic data, behavior data, staff training, and so much more. There's a link in the show notes with all of the information. Let's make this year the year that data really works. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. Welcome back to the Autism Helper Podcast. Today I'm chatting with Dr. Noreen Russell, who is the founder of Russell Coaching. Russell Coaching provides individualized coaching for students with ADHD, autism, or anxiety. And today, Dr. Russell and I are talking all about executive functions. You know, this is one of my favorite things to talk about. Specifically today, we focused on problem solving. I caught myself taking notes during this interview, you guys. Dr. Russell has so many great suggestions and really mindset shifts that we want to have when it comes to the goal of our instruction, the goal of how we are parenting, how we are prompting when it comes to this really important skill of problem solving. Problem solving is complex and we want to really make sure we are taking the time. I think that was the recurring theme throughout our conversation, taking the time to teach this skill, which it might take some time and that's okay. So let's go ahead and jump in right away from Dr. Russell. In the show notes, I have the link to her website as well as all of her social channels if you'd like to learn more from her. Hi, Dr. Russell. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. 
Well, I'm excited to just spend some time talking about executive functions, which is really one of my favorite things to talk about because I find again and again, it's such a global thing that so many adults and children are struggling with. Absolutely, they are. And they're just, I say all the time, they're just basic life skills, right? We don't have to get intimidated by this idea of executive functioning skills. They're just basic life skills. And we all have strengths when it comes to our executive functioning. And we all have areas that are a little less developed. I know, especially when you start to learn about them, you realize in yourself, which ones come naturally, right? Like organization comes pretty naturally to me, but task initiation does not. So everyone has their different kind of repertoire of, of what yeah, skills and strengths they have when it comes to, to these skills. Yeah. Yeah. If I was ever going to develop, um, you know, any kind of uh, training for, you know, people who are getting married, you know, one of the things I always joke about when I'm doing a session on executive functioning is if you are a task initiator, then make sure you marry someone who is great at goal-directed persistence so they can finish <laughs> everything you start. And if you are great at the goal-directed persistence, find yourself a task initiator. Um, oh yeah. my God. I love that idea. Like relationship training and like a dating app related right? to your executive functions. How amazing would that be? <laughs> Right? I mean, well, and I think it's just so important for us as adults to know what our strengths are and which areas are a little less developed or, or possibly even a little less important to us. I know when I started getting training on executive functioning skills, um, I was trained in the Dawson and Guar Smart But Scattered model, which I think is a great book, Smart But Scattered, and there's one for teens. And they have an informal assessment in the book. And what my informal assessment said was that, you know, I had all these great executive functioning skills, planning, organizing. I mean, I was feeling great, Sasha. <laughs> and then my flexibility score was like <laughs> rock bottom, rock bottom. Um, and I was like, you know, this is a good insight for me. And so often when we're working with families at Russell Coaching, we'll say to parents, you know, you're welcome to take the adult version of this and really have some, um, you know, some understanding of how this creates certain dynamics in your family. You know, if mom is super organized and super great at time management and task initiation and the student, which, you know, is likely still developing their skills in that area, it helps to have a more balanced family conversation if we know what might be driving some of our um, anxiety about kids getting work done. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think, you know, in addition to being aware of what things come more naturally to you, being aware of what supports that you may be unknowingly put in for yourself. I, I tell these teachers all the time to almost like think aloud the strategies that you set up for yourself. Like I always put my keys in this spot because then I don't forget them. Like that's a, that's a coping strategy that you've added to your, your daily routine that helps you. And we don't always realize all these little tricks that we've added for ourselves. Yes, absolutely. We learn them as we go. Yeah. I want to talk specifically today about, I know we could probably, you know, cover so many different strategies with all these different skills, but I want to kind of focus in today on problem solving and planning in particular. I think teaching and building problem solving can seem so overwhelming for teachers and parents because it's such a big skill, like problem solving. You can't rote memorize this. What types of students do you see struggling with problem solving? 
You know, that's a good question. And obviously any student can struggle with problem solving, but I do think that students with autism struggle in very particular ways with problem solving, probably mostly having to do with um, needing to develop some theory of mind perspective. And then our anxious kids struggle from a Um, Am I doing this right? You know, a perfectionistic point of view. Like, is this the right answer? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? And then our kids with ADHD, you know, struggle for a few reasons, but also sometimes, you know, because they have trouble sorting through the information um, and then staying focused long enough to see the, the problem from start to finish. So those are three you know, neurodevelopmental issues that that I really see as getting in the way of problem solving in the classroom. So talk kind of big picture about what problem solving is, because you touched on some of that in that answer, which was really helpful. What are like the foundational skills and steps we need to be a problem solver? Right. Well, I mean, the first thing, and (laughs) this is going to sound kind of silly, is we need to realize it's a problem. Yes. <laughs> I mean, because honestly, when you when you look around, not everyone defines a problem the same way, right? Sometimes, I mean, I'll throw myself under the bus here. There's a lot of things I think are problems that my kids don't necessarily think are problems, yeah. right? Um, and so recognizing something is a problem. Now in a more structured classroom environment where you're given a problem to solve, you know, that's a little more obvious. Um, But then, and this is the tricky part, I think, then it's coming up with what are your possible options to solve this problem, right? And, And many, many people go with the first one, the first thing they can come up with, that that's what it is. Because thinking of options is really hard cognitive work. Um, It just, it is. Um, And so that I think is an area where we can really hone in on, on helping kids in the classroom and at home. Okay, so what's another option? What's another option? And then third step, evaluate those options. Okay, what's gonna happen if you choose, you know, solution number one? What's gonna happen if you choose solution number two? what have you done in the past that might be relevant to think about here, right? Mm-hmm. And then selecting the solution, but don't stop there, right? We have to evaluate the solution after we solve the problem and see, okay, was that a good solution? That's yeah, a lot of It's a lot of steps. <laughs> it is a lot of cognitive effort. Yeah. And it's like a lot of gray area too. It's not, and I could see mm-hmm. why some more rigid thinkers could really struggle with this because it's not just like there's a correct or an incorrect. There's probably multiple options that could be successful. So there's a lot of this gray area space in this whole process. For sure. I'll give you an example. Um, My daughter is a ninth grader and in her English class, she is supposed to write an essay on a life event. Sasha, she's had this assignment, I think, for a good three weeks. Um, and she does <laughs> online schooling and it's self-paced and, you know, um, you know, she's successful at school. I'm not overly worried about this. But every single time that she has a decision like that to make, 
it paralyzes her. And, you know, we have all the conversations like, okay, well, what would be three possible life events? Well, I can't think of any, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's stop and think, you know, and repeating the question, what things have happened to you in your life? Total blankness, right? Like she is just not good at generating options. And so it's something that takes a lot of time on my part as the homeschool teacher, if you will, um, to get her to come up with what are the options. Um, She's just, you know, she's just, she wants to find the one right answer and do that. Yeah. I can empathize with that and see how it, oh, well, it's like a waste of time to think through these wrong answers, but you know, there's not always that perfect right answer. And sometimes that's part of the process is brainstorming and thinking through everything. Yeah, absolutely. I think that kind of divergent thinking, you know, being able to look at something from multiple perspectives is so incredibly valuable. And um, we do some of it from a very academic point of view, you know, in K-12 education, but I'm not sure there's, you know, enough focus on problem solving, divergent thinking, creative thinking, you know, and then it becomes hard to think about what are the options, you know, and, and some students are just particularly talented at that. But I do think our kids with autism can struggle with that because it's not concrete or black and white. Yeah. So so what are some ways that teachers can bring this more into the classroom? And I think even beyond just like an academic problem, but a social problem or a, you know, you know, but more independent behavioral type problem, what are ways that teachers can support kids that are struggling with this in in school? You know, what I want to say there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is. You know, what I want to say there is from the big picture is I think it's most helpful if a school has a philosophy around how do we teach problem solving, you know, and, mm-hmm. and then it can permeate curriculum. It can permeate, you know, executive functioning development. It can permeate social stuff. But, you know, the difficulty for schools is that coaching a student or a group of students through problem solving is incredibly time intensive. Yeah. And so that's really hard. I think in a classroom, you know, what teachers can do, you know, is very explicitly say, okay, we are going to work on, you know, whatever problem it might be, you know, maybe they're, you know, in middle school social studies and they're going to build a diorama of a historical building, you know, okay, well, what challenges are you going to have? What are your options, right? And and have the students independently complete some of that work, you know, and then have some discussion around, okay, what are the options? What would be the pros and cons of building a, you know, pyramid versus building, you know, a national monument versus the Eiffel Tower, you know? Um, but I think it's it's giving enough time to students to think through, okay, what are my options? I need to come up with three options. And then what will be the pros and cons of choosing to build, you know, a Greek temple versus a pyramid versus the White House? Um, And that 
part I think is hard. And I think we as adults still jump in a lot there, you know, and, and that's where maybe we need to pull back as parents, educators, professionals, and, and make sure that the student or students who are working on that have enough time, Uh, you know, especially your kids who have slow processing speed, your kids who are frequently distracted. The, I think, you know, I know this is really a big picture question, but I really think the problem with teaching problem solving is the time that it takes Um, because you can't make it happen any faster than it's going to happen. But this is what we talk about all the time in coaching. If you continuously use the same set of questions to guide a student or a child through problem solving, that becomes their inner dialogue. If we're constantly providing the solution to, you know, the mean girls or the mean boys, or, you know, I didn't get picked for a sports team or, you know, whatever it is, then we deprive a child of that ability, that opportunity to, to problem solve, you know? And when I'm training my coaches for Russell coaching, I say the absolute last thing you're ever going to do is provide a solution to the student. You know, you can sit and wait five, 10, 15 minutes. You can summarize, you can active listen, but when we provide the solutions, which we do often because we feel rushed for time, then we deprive that child of an opportunity to problem solve. I think that's such a great point. And you like hit the nail on the head on the time. And even with this example that you gave on the historical monuments, like you could envision the teacher being like, okay, let's just pick one and let's move on. We got to get to the next lesson, the next class. But, you know, spending that time and I think teachers really identifying the reason and the why behind spending the time. And I think if we can teach more teachers that, that like, Hey, there's a purpose here and there's a reason why we're giving this wait time and we're, it might feel painful to do this, but this is why we're doing this. And this is what we're going to teach in the long run. There could hopefully be more of that. Honestly, Sasha, I think given how pressured teachers feel, I would, you know, with a project like that, which is a pretty common middle school project, you're going to, you're going to build something, um, you know, for history class, social studies, whatever. I really think the time is probably better spent not doing the building, right? But talking about what are your options? What would be, you know, the challenges of building that? What would be, you know, the easy parts? And then go through your three options and really weigh those options and write out what are the pros and cons. And then the decision making, um, you know, okay, so how did you choose this option and why did you choose it? You know, my kids went to um, a middle school where the history teacher was very project based, but, you know, which in general I think is, is great. Um, Mm -hmm. But both my kiddos spent so much time figuring out how to insert a toothpick into a ball of clay to (laughs) stand, you know, a piece of wood on. And we want to make sure that we're getting really to the root of the lesson or the skill. And so sometimes planning things is more important than doing things. I I think that's going to be an unpopular opinion, but. No, I totally agree. Cause it's, I mean, yes the fine motor skills and the STEM-based components of actually building out something is great, but what's really the goal? And 
in your in your continuing on with the same example, if you were to spend 80% of the time on this whole planning decision-making process, think about how much you're going to learn and talk about those three options that you've decided on. Like you've basically built each one in your head. So that, yes. that you're getting that even, even more value than just like picking one, moving on. You're not even thinking about the other two anymore. So you're getting to that goal of, of the lesson and the activity or the project in such a better way. Another area where I think this skill is so vital is in helping kids of all ages with social dynamics. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, they're upset, you know, in the younger years, you know, well, she left me out of the lunch table or, you know, whatever it is. We all know what the social situations are that can be upsetting for for all of us. Um, But when we, you know, in our role as parent or professional are listening to that child um, or that student, I think it's so important that our listening be about question asking and reflection invitation, you know, so, okay, so you got kicked out of the lunch table today. That's kind of ick. You don't need to say anything more as the adult. You don't. Mm-hmm. But we as adults rush into, well, who else could you sit with at lunch? Well, do you think they'll, you know, have space for you tomorrow, you know? And we heighten the anxiety. Um, and so for social and emotional intelligence, I think it's so important that we have a set of strong questions that we can use that guide students and kids through thinking about, okay, so, you know, that didn't feel so good. Do you think that's likely to happen again? You know, Mm -hmm. and then again, listening, because kids are, this is stuff they have to think about. We can't rush it. Um, Okay. Well, what, what are your options? You tell me, what are your options? You know, and then the ultimate question, what do you want? Mm. That's hard for adults to answer sometimes. (laughs) Oh, I think it's a very hard question to answer. What do you want? Yeah. I learned that from someone like 10 years ago or something. And um, I use it a lot in making business decisions. What do you want? Um, You know, and, and so I think teaching kids to look at it from that perspective, okay, you've got choices, you've got options. What do you want? And if a kid says, well, I want them to invite me back to the lunch table, we can respond to that with empathy, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, I'd probably want that too in your shoes. I hope that will happen. I do. And maybe it's a good idea for us to talk about some other options. You know, as you're like going through this whole situation, I'm so guilty of, as a parent, jumping to the solution right away because, you know, time is also a factor parenting, but also you like, you want for your kids, obviously to not be left out, to not have these struggles. And and my husband's actually a little bit the opposite of me. He's always like, struggles are good. Struggles are good. They make them tough. Their life's so easy. And I'm like, they're little, it's fine. Um, but even like the BCBA and teacher in me is like, well, let, let, let's, let's get to the answer right away. And it's, and it's such a rushed process without that time and letting them kind of drive that bus. It is. And then, you know, I think what we're starting to see in the culture, right, is parenting has shifted so dramatically in the last 10 to 20 years. And I think there has been a decrease in problem solving skills. And I think that's why a lot of kids, when they go off to college, 
you know, are calling their parents about every little thing or texting their parents about every little thing and why their parents are doing every little thing for them. You know, yeah. I think connection is great. Talk to your parents every day about what you're doing and how you're feeling. Connection is great. I love technology for connection. But, you know, what, <coughs> excuse me, what I see a lot is parents jumping in to rescue or solve as opposed to saying, well, I don't really know how you would know if that's a mandatory book or not. You know, how would you figure that out? Yeah. Or, you know, I don't really know why your bursar account is frozen. Where would you figure that out at? You know, we are the generation of anxiety, right? And so as parents, we're anxious. We want our kids to have what they need. We want to be good parents. We're very earnestly trying to be good parents. And, and our kids are anxious. And getting to the solution makes us feel good. Um, but your husband's right. You know, the skills you develop when you are independently problem solving are so much more valuable than getting the solution that day. And I can see how you said earlier, it kind of adds to that child's anxiety because when a parent gives an answer right away, that feels like the right answer it's, oh my God, well, they got the right answer. How did they do that that fast? I can't do it that fast. And now you're, you know, developing this like kind of cyclical behavior of like, well, now I know where to go for the answer. And if I, it stresses me out to even try to figure it out on my own. Yeah. 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 My, one of my teenagers the other day said to me, mom, we don't have any dog food. And I was like, oh, really? Now, Sasha, I know how much dog food there is in the house. I'm not as dumb as I'm pretending to be. <laughs> um, hmm, we don't have any dog food. I mean, I'm just slowing the whole pace of this conversation down to give him some time to think about this. Well, hmm, so, so what should we do? We don't have any dog food. And he's like, well, I don't know, but there's no dog food. I was like, okay, yeah, there's no dog food. You're 15. <laughs> Let's think about what some possible solutions are. Like, I don't want you calling me in 10 years when you have your own dog and saying, what do I do with there's no dog food? You know, like, I mean. And, there, and there's adults that totally do that. <laughs> yes, there are. I mean, that's kind of a silly example. And yeah. I, I acknowledge that. But I think when we rush into problem solve, it's exactly what you said you know, the voice inside the child then says, oh, someone else is going to have the right, the correct answer. I'm not. And talk a little bit about the value of in this problem solving process, picking quote unquote, the wrong answer, not necessarily that there's a wrong answer, but a, a you know, a solution that maybe doesn't get you where you intended and like what that teaches. Oh, that is the best thing ever, right? <laughs> I mean, that is so completely awesome. And we want that. But again, I think parenting has changed so dramatically, you know, that we are afraid to let our kids make mistakes. I think this conversation is very analogous to the whole boredom conversation. Like, I'm bored, I'm yeah. bored, you know? And it's like, okay, well, you're bored. Like, you're bored. I have work to do. I'm going back to the office. Like I am not, 
fixing your boredom. I am not giving you solutions for your boredom. The whole point of being bored is to come up with your own creative ideas to spend your time in the summer. Like, great. I'm glad you're bored. Now, both my kids probably want to take a hammer to my head when I say that because they've heard it for years and years and years. Like, great. I'm so excited you're bored. (laughs) You're going to tell me tonight when I get home, you know? And I think that, you know, this is kind of the same thing, you know, great. Like you made a mistake. Um, I think there are stories of inventors and innovators that can really be helpful for our kids. Look at how long it took, you know, whoever insert, you know, anyone from Thomas Edison to Steve Jobs, right? Mm -hmm. Great. You are one step closer to figuring out what could work better. So absolutely you want to take mistakes. I know, you know, from a business perspective, um, you know, one of the people on our team talks a lot about if you're landing, you know, kind of every opportunity, then you're not reaching high enough, you know, like if you're not failing, then you're not reaching high enough. Um, and, and I think we have to make making mistakes a positive thing for kids. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. So, um, you know, and we have to not be flustered like, Oh, well that's okay. Don't worry. You'll get it right the next time. None of that yeah. language is helpful. Like, yeah. Okay. So, you know, that didn't work out. You had a plan to make your, you know, teepee out of fabric and popsicle sticks and the whole thing fell apart. And now you have to figure out what to redo. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. You know, there's, um, I wish I could remember who, who I learned this term from, but I love this term for working with kids, sports casting, just narrate what's mm-hmm. happening, you know, as opposed to fixing or solving or redirecting, just narrate what's going on. Yeah. The popsicle sticks fell. Yeah. When you cut the fabric, it, it didn't end up being the right shape. Hmm. I love that term too. Cause it allows people to contribute. I think that's the hard thing, you know, for teachers. And I, and I see this a lot with paras in class too, like great, hardworking, amazing paraprofessionals, but they're like jumping in so much because they like want something to do and a way to help. And it's, this is a way that you can contribute and be a part of it without jumping in with the solution. Right. Right. Like, and this is the most valuable thing you can do because you're teaching them how to think you're teaching them how to problem solve independently. It doesn't feel as rewarding as having the answer. Right. I mean, Who doesn't love to be the answer guru? Like, oh, I've got a great idea. Well, if we, you know, take a cone of paper and use that as a pattern for our teepee and we cut the fabric out using the cone pattern, then it'll all be great. Well, (laughs) okay, great. Like you, Mr. or Mrs. Adult, just made a teepee. That kid didn't make it. I know when you see kids' projects that you're like, that kid didn't make that. (laughs) No, no. You know, when you were talking about the dog food example, I was thinking about, you know, in, in maybe early childhood classrooms or classrooms where students maybe have, you know, limited verbal skills on, on kind of the same idea that when kids are, are needing something that so often we swoop in too quickly with like, oh my God, I forgot to give you the, the ketchup for your chicken nuggets at lunch and let me run and grab it. Or, you know, I gave the paint without the paintbrush and that we can provide some of that wait time and, and allow that like productive struggle. I think especially in structured classrooms, life skills classrooms, everything is so curated for the child because, well, they're not flexible. We don't want to get them upset. And not that 
we want to make life hard, but we kind of want to make life hard a little bit in a way that they can are in a safe classroom environment where they can learn and we can support them. Well, and that's really, I think, what you learn as the parent or the educator or, you know, the professional is the more you practice this, the more skilled you are at gauging the right amount of scaffolding, right? Mm -hmm. Because kids will need support sometimes, but a lot of times we provide too much support. And so as adults practice this skill of figuring out exactly how much support is needed through using things like sports casting and using questions for problem solving, you know, you're going to see when the child starts to get overly frustrated, you know, and we don't want that. I don't want, you know, my kids who have autism to get to the point where they are so burnt out cognitively from thinking of options or evaluating options. But the other side of that is we have to build that up over time. If you don't experience frustration to a manageable extent, then you're not going to get to the next level of frustration management. And I think that's true whether we're talking about, you know, neurotypical people, people with autism, ADHD, or anxiety. It's, you know, we have to get right in that, you know, educators call it the zone of proximal development, right? If you're providing too much support, then the kid's not challenged. If you're not providing enough support, then the kid gets frustrated and checks out. Um, and so the more we practice this, the better we can gauge that. And, and it's very individual. And I think that part is hard for teachers. You know, how do you individually meet a child where they're at in a classroom, you know, even if it's a small group of six or eight or the larger classroom of, you know, 20 to 22, um, that that's hard. It's hard to find the time for. Yeah, exactly. It's that sweet spot that is, is the mm -hmm. tricky piece. And sometimes when I talk about this really briefly, let's say on like social media, I'll have people that are like, oh, that's so mean. You're not, you're just gonna like not help a child. I'm like, that's not what I'm saying, but it's finding, yeah, where that, you know, right amount of not too much, you know, not too little is at. And it, it's definitely a, a practice thing. And I think not only is that hard for educators, but then really hard to maybe teach your team as well, especially mm -hmm. when staff is so short or, you know, there's so, so much staff turnover that now you're like reteaching again and again to maybe the paras in your room. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great point is, you know, how do you quickly get people up to speed on this skill that really, you know, is a little bit of, um, you know, it's a little bit of an art form. You need to really carefully observe the student to see, okay, where's their stress level? If you're, you know, taking a look at that on a scale of one to 10, does that particular student tolerate frustration up to, let's say, a three? And then that's when they need the co-teacher or the para to step in. Does this other kid tolerate frustration up to like a seven level before you know, he throws his pencil across the room. And those are things we can only know about kids when we're really carefully observing. There's no one size fits all. I know. And it changes. I was just thinking as you were saying that, like, well, then, you know, what's a three on, on Tuesday might the same, the totally different experience could bring them to, you know, a three or a seven based on how they slept or what happened on the, on the bus ride. I mean, even from, you know, my own experience, you, you have a similar morning, but something else throws you off. Exactly. Our executive functioning skills are affected by, 
you know, in, in a temporary sense, affected by sleep, mood, food, interactions, you know, and absolutely. If, if your bucket is a little empty that day, you might, you know, start throwing the pencils or breaking the pencils a little sooner in the, you know, in the classroom. Um, And then I think we have to just remember that everyone's doing the best they can. And kids who have neurodiversity, you know, are certainly doing the best they can do. So, you know, if you have a kid with autism who's really struggling with figuring out how to read people socially, how do I take these cues? How do I then change my behavior? You know, we just have to come back to kids do as well as they can, you know, in the words of Ross Green, you know, who I think is a genius, kids do as well as they can. And I think the same is true for adults. And so, you know, as we're addressing problem solving with kids with autism, kind of normalizing the idea that some problems are going to be harder for them to solve. And and those might be the social problems. And, you know, we have to be patient. We have to recognize their efforts and we have to listen to them on what's challenging about this. And if it's a goal they really want to be working on. Yes. Oh my gosh. Well, this, I could like talk to you about this forever. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. I feel like we covered a lot and you gave a lot of really helpful, actionable strategies. Where can people go to learn more from you and about the coaching that you provide? Sure. Um, Our website is um, www.russellcoaching.com and What we do is work with students, um, grades one through 12, to build executive functioning skills. And then in middle school and high school, we add in their study and learning strategies. um, And um, we also, secondly, work on social and emotional skills. So we are the largest student coaching practice in the country for kids who are neurodiverse and we really specialize in kids who have autism, ADHD, and anxiety, and try to, you know, alleviate some of the conflict at home um, that can happen when kids are, you know, the executive functioning is getting in the way of their academic achievement. So that's what we do. We've been doing it for 14 years and we absolutely love it. It's so joyful to be able to work with a student who has the capacity to do well in school academically, but their executive functioning skills have been the thing holding them back and creating conflict at home. And, you know, to be able to get in there and coach that student and really help them develop, okay, How do I manage my time? How do I prioritize what has to get done today? How do I get myself to do all this work that I don't really want to do? You know? And so WrestleCoaching.com is us. And then all our social, you can link to from there. Great. Well, I will put your website and your social channels in the show notes so people can reach out if they are interested. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Russell, for joining me. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you for having me. Really fun conversation. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. 
so your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum, everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.